Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And also, it's very difficult to know, you know, the verdict. You don't have the verdict whether you've survived it or not. The the tremors of, of these things continue, you know, to... Uh, this is why I don't understand, you know, when people say, uh, you know, have you found closure? I don't... And I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic with the... Um, you know, I appreciate the sentiment. The sentiment is, you know, I hope you feel better. I hope you could put this away and get on with it, you know, uh, with life. And uh, but it seems to me it's it's the you know I'm not interested really in things that close. Uh, I'm interested in openings. I'm interested in in knowledge and really thinking about these things. I find vitality uh, in that. I don't. It's not easy, of course, but I find vitality in it. Does grief divide? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. In his emotive new memoir, The Return, Libyan writer Hisham Matter states, I've always detested the confusion of funerals, the uncertainty of cemeteries, the bewilderment of the headstone. One of the injustices involved in disappearing a person is a difficult one to describe. It turns the disappeared into an abstraction. Hisham goes on to write, The question of what father went through during his captivity continues to haunt me. Well, this week I had the very great pleasure of talking with Hisham Matter on his powerful new memoir, The Return, published by the Viking Press. My name is Hisham Matar. I'm a Libyan writer, but um, a Libyan writer with a complicated uh, history. I was born in, in New York and I've lived part of my life in Libya and in Egypt and most of it in in London. Um, the book that I'm about to read to you from is, is my latest book, and it's a, it's a memoir um, that I've written uh, after returning home to Libya after 33 years of not being able to, to go there. So it's um, the book is called The Return, um, and it is really provoked by this, this trip back. I'll read from the beginning. Chapter 1, Trapdoor. Early morning, March 2012, my mother, my wife Diana, and I were sitting in a row of seats that were bolted to the tiled floor of a lounge in Cairo International Airport. Flight 835 for Benghazi, a voice announced, was due to depart on time. Every now and then, my mother glanced anxiously at me. Diana, too, seemed concerned. She placed a hand on my arm and smiled. I should get up and walk around, I told myself. But my body remained rigid. I had never felt more capable of stillness. The terminal was nearly empty. There was only one man sitting opposite us. He was overweight, weary-looking, possibly in his mid-fifties. There was something in the way he sat, the locked hands on the lap, the left tilt of the torso, that signaled resignation. Was he Egyptian or Libyan? Was he on a visit to the neighboring country or going home after the revolution? Had he been for or against Gaddafi? 
Perhaps he was one of those undecided ones who held the reservations close to their chest. The voice of the announcer returned. It was time to board. I found myself standing at the front of the line, Diana beside me. She had, on more than one occasion, taken me to the town where she was born in northern California. I know the plants and the color of the light and the distances where she grew up. Now I was finally taking her to my land. She had packed the Hasselblad and the Leica, her two favorite cameras, a hundred rolls of film. Diana works with great fidelity. Once she gets hold of a thread, she will follow it until the end. Knowing this excited and worried me. I'm reluctant to give Libya any more than it has already taken. Mother was pacing by the windows that looked onto the runway, speaking on her mobile phone. People, mostly men, began to fill the terminal. Diana and I were now standing at the head of a long line, bent behind us like a river. I pretended I had forgotten something and pulled her to one side. Returning after all these years was a bad idea, I suddenly thought. My family had left in 1979, 33 years earlier. This was the chasm that divided the man from the eight-year-old boy I was then. The plane was going to cross the gulf. Surely such journeys were reckless. This one could rob me of a skill that I have worked hard to cultivate how to live away from places and people I love. Joseph Brodsky was right. So were Nabokov and Conrad. They were artists who never returned. Each had tried, in his own way, to cure himself of his country. What you have left behind has dissolved. Return, and you will face the absence or the defacement of what you treasured. But Dmitry Chostakovich and Boris Pasternak and Nagib Mahfouz were also right. Never leave the homeland. Leave and your connections to the source will be severed. You'll be like a dead trunk, hard and hollow. What do you do when you cannot leave and cannot return? Really well done on the book, Hisham. It's an, a remarkable read. It's, it's hugely courageous. There's a subtlety to it. There's a poetry to it. I might throw you a big wide open question to start off with. And I'm just going to pick up some of the words that you do use. Is grief a faraway country? How do you understand it all? I don't know what grief is. This is part of, I think, of the motor behind the book. It's trying to, um, to understand it, to engage with it. I think one of the effects of this experience of going through these, these events of, you know, experiencing the disappearance of your father, of not being able to return to the country that you're from, living in another language, writing in another language, um, one of the one of the sensations that at least it, it inflicts on me is the sense of drowning. You know, is the sense of being as though history exists against you. Um, and so, one of the things that I'm trying to do in the book, or one of the things that I'm engaging with, is to try to do the opposite, to sort of create a space for my consciousness. You know, space where articulation is possible and where I can not take anything for granted, where I can think, in other words, about grief in a way that uh, doesn't feel inherited, you know. And, and um, 
And so um, one of the things that Greece is, I think, is, is a much more dynamic space than, than I had, uh, or at least culture had, had suggested to me. I think we, particularly in our time, we are very uneasy uh, around grief. We are uneasy around the bereaved, and uh, we never know what to say. Um, never know what to how to fix it, uh, and these and so many other articulations of our responses, I think, say something to us about our relationship to it. And one of the things that I found out through through my experience is that it's actually a very vibrant, uh, you know, painful, hard work, but it's a very vibrant space. And in our impatient, um, confessional. Uh, tendencies. Sometimes we want to somehow do away with these things, you know, with things like grief and frustration, boredom. <laughs> these things can be incredibly um, interesting and creative uh, spaces. Uh, not pleasant, obviously. But, so I felt I felt that that we overlook sometimes what grief is, and I wanted to to meditate over, it, think about it, and other things that have have come along with this experience. Well, you can't control grief. And in your case, there was a tremendous amount of uncertainty on to how your father died and where he was. Can you describe your father, Jabala? He was an extraordinary man. He had so many different talents. Can you describe him? Yeah, no, this is, I think, part of, again, one of the, one of the, one of the motivations for writing the book, uh, paradoxically, is that I can't describe him. Trying to describe my father is a bit like trying to describe myself. You know, it's, it's impossible to me. I don't. I, I don't have an authority on it. You know, to be able to. Uh, and I think it says something about the nature of intimacy: is that he's so close that he is that, that I can't really see him properly. And the experience of losing him the way I did, um, where you know he disappeared, and, and for the majority of my life, and I'm now 45. He he, he was kidnapped from his home in, in Cairo and taken to Libya and then eventually disappears in the political prison. Um, but when that happened, I was 19. So for this uh, amount of time, my relationship to his losses is, is complex because, you know, when you lose somebody to death, and I have lost dear people to me in that way, it's very painful. It's also very ambiguous and complex. But at least there's a certainty. You know, at this particular moment, they cease to exist in the ways that we know of, at least, regardless of what beliefs we might have about the afterlife. Uh, but when somebody disappears, the quality of your hours is 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 uh, touched by them all the time. You know, the 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 the, the possibility of them existing at this exact moment. You know, not abstractly, but exactly at this second, under the same sun, under the same moon, is a vivid and real one. And it changes the way you walk, the way you eat, you know, the way you sleep. And also, I think one of the deep injustices involved in disappearance is that it also complicates your memory of the person. Uh, so one of the things that was going on in the book is me trying to really attend to my memory of him, trying to answer the question that you've just asked me, you know. Can I describe him? To what extent do I know him? Um, but yes, I mean, for um, your listeners, and in, in very kind of brief way, uh, you know, he was, uh, you know, many things. He was a military man before the coup in 1969 that brought uh, Gaddafi. Then he was a reluctant diplomat in 
New York, which is why I was born here in in, in America. And then he, you know, resigned because um, the, the Gaddafi regime tore up the constitution and announced Gaddafi de facto leader forever and imprisoned a few dissidents and so on. And that was the moment my father resigned and we moved back to Libya. He became a an entrepreneur and then we went to Egypt and he became very, very involved in the exiled um, opposition movements and became one of its most uh, effective leaders, uh, which is why in 1990, he was uh, abducted and taken secretly to a prison in Libya and, 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 and disappeared. From the prison, he sends letters. Uh, we received three letters that were smuggled out of prison, eventually reached us. Um, and they are remarkable. You know, they have in it in them his whole self. So they're amazing documents. And uh, and again, those are, you know, so, so I'm trying, you know, to attend to the man I knew as a boy and uh, the man I knew as a, when I was my, uh, a teenager and, and then also the man that I knew after he disappeared, you know, through these, through these letters and through the, the testimonies and stories that I heard from fellow prisoners. And um, so it's, um, it's a story. You know, what was really interesting in the, writing of it is that um, having not written a memoir before, I've written two novels before, and I I know the thrill and excitement of being caught up in the activity of the imagination. You know, that's just one of my favorite things about writing. And so I had wrongly assumed that writing a memoir would somehow diminish that because I'm writing a lot of things that I know about or have happened. And so it's a different kind of imaginative engagement with memory. But because the story has in it a lot of black holes, things that I don't know, I don't know what happened to my father. I don't know what his quiet hours were like in prison. And and those are things that I've spent a very long time quietly thinking about them, uh, not able to share my, my thinking about them, even with my mother and my brother, because they're painful thing. And uh, and so when I came to write this book, um, you know, as exact and authentic and faithful as I am trying to be to past events, um, my imagination was, as it were, co-remembering with me. It was a very interesting surprise, um, imaginatively, and uh, made writing the book a real paradox because <laughs> As you know, you know it's it's a very painful book to to have written. It's an emotional, psychological space that was very difficult to sustain over the three years that it took to write it. Um, which is why, you know, uh, it feels when I look back on it, I am I am thrilled that I've written it. But I'm also thrilled that I had the stamina to write it, you know, it was very humanistically, I'm not even talking creatively here, humanistically, it was very difficult to, it demanded certain muscles from me that um, were perhaps not as developed as I I, I wanted them to be. And so it was, uh, it was quite a process in that way. But, you know, but the paradox is that notwithstanding all these difficulties, it was thrilling to write because, uh, creatively, it was demanding a lot of a lot of uh, things for me, and always felt like the novels. Always felt just around the corner uh, of my of my abilities, just out of reach of what I might be able to pull off. And that's what excites me as a writer um, is, is is being kept on my toes in this way. That's why it always feels like a 
high wire act that you know you might not make it um you know i I really do think books are our fate and and this book, regardless of the of my personal fate that made it necessary, which I regret and really deeply hope wish it were otherwise you know i feel very uh i felt very lucky you know to have this book to work on as an artist because i felt it was um it was better than me you know that's what you want to feel as a as a writer that's a that's a remarkable statement to make hisham you you talk a lot about absent presence throughout the book and you write that need and uncertainty can be excellent teachers And then you go on to write, I have always wondered if it is possible to lose your father without sensing that particular moment of his death. On the 29th of June 1996, 1,270 Libyans were executed in Abu Salem prison. And there is a huge possibility that your father was one of them. And that Saturday morning, you visited the National Gallery. It was part of your routine, I think. And that day, you were sitting in front of the execution of Maximilian. I think you got up early in the morning. You were very unsettled. And that um, Edward Manet painting is a picture of a political execution. It's a firing line. That is remarkable that here you are in the National Gallery. And whether how we are in synergy or not with those we love all around us. Yes. No, I, I discovered that when I was writing the book, that that, that was, uh, I didn't know it then. Uh, I was trying to work on a part of the book that articulates my thinking about um, my father's absence, uh, disappearance, um, and recalling how when I was in my early 20s, I was secretly consoled by the thought that it would be uh, impossible to to lose someone that close to you without you sensing it in, in the moments of your day. And I had heard a Syrian poet who was visiting London to give a reading uh, say in a radio interview that he was staying at a hotel uh, in London, and he walked out and, and walked in, in, in the green nearby, and suddenly recalled his mother in a very powerful way, and felt very tearful. Went back to the hotel, found a message from his brother saying that uh, his mother just passed away. And I was some, it made perfect sense to me. I thought, of course, you know, that's a, a very <laughs> reasonable um, thing to happen, and surely that would happen to me too if my father were killed, which meant. Because it didn't happen that my father was, you know, continuing.